Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Hello, I'm John Henley and this is Brexit Memes, the Guardian podcast that for the past two years has been doing its level best to make sense of the nonsensical and that may occasionally even have succeeded. No idea whether we will do this time, of course, because things are getting quite hairy out there, but we'll certainly try. So, previously in Brexit... You will recall that Britain was originally due to leave the EU at the end of last month, but since it really wasn't looking remotely like readying itself to do so, Theresa May asked for an extension until June the 30th. The EU27 didn't fancy that and instead said that Britain could stay until May the 22nd, but only providing Parliament managed to ratify the withdrawal agreement by March the 29th, which obviously it didn't, instead opting to vote down the Brexit deal for a third time. Now, the EU's instructions to London in the event of that happening were that it could indicate a way forward by April the 12th, that's this Friday, in which case the bloc would consider a further longer extension on its merits. This would necessarily involve the UK holding a European elections in May, though, which is something that the government is really not keen on doing. On the other hand, without a way forward, it would be out without a deal on the 12th. So, with May's thrice-defeated deal apparently out for the count and MPs proving unable after two separate days of indicative votes to reach any kind of consensus on a Brexit alternative, two things happened. First, the EU called an emergency summit for April the 10th, that's tomorrow. And second, the PM locked her cabinet up for seven hours to find a solution. To the utter horror of her hardliners, this was to go into talks with Jeremy Corbyn and try to reach an agreement with Labour on a vision of the UK's post-Brexit future, maybe involving a permanent customs union or some kind of Norway-style relationship with the EU. And, if that didn't work, to let Parliament decide. So... Those talks don't seem to have been going very well. The Prime Minister has now gone back to the EU to ask them to consider her original June the 30th extension, but this time she's promised she'll plan for the European elections in the hope, of course, that some kind of cross-party agreement will be reached before they actually have to be held. With us so far, good. That's where we are now. As we speak, Theresa May is jetting to Berlin and then on to Paris, and she will then beseech the EU27 
two days before the April the 12th deadline to grant her her delay. And adding somewhat to the excitement, the EU27 are for once not in complete agreement about how to respond. What does it all mean? And where might Brexit now be heading? With me to discuss these burning questions are on the line from Cambridge, where she is Professor of EU Law, Catherine Barnard, in Brussels, where she is The Guardian's correspondent, Jennifer Rankin, and here in the studio, Joe Owen of the Institute for Government. Welcome to all of you. Um, Joe, can I start with you? And before we sort of get into the nitty gritty of the domestic politics and the deal and the European politics and the extension, can you just talk us a little bit through this rather kind of late breaking development um, that is the Cooper Letwin Amendment, so called? It's been rushed through Parliament. It's finished its third reading in the Lords on Monday night. It could be important. I mean, what does it say exactly? And is it going to have any bearing on what happens in the rest of the week? So I think the first thing to say is to kind of remember what this bill is. It's pretty extraordinary. What backbenchers have done has they took control of the parliamentary timetable, disapplying these things standing orders that usually standing order that usually means that the government controls the timetable in the Commons. They disapplied that, they ran a series of indicative votes and then passed this piece of legislation, the Letwin Cooper Bill. Which very narrowly very, squeaked through, didn't it? Very narrowly. And it's the sort of thing that when these kinds of ideas about the Commons taking control of parliamentary time came up in the beginning of this year, it kind of sent shivers down the spine of some kind of constitutional uh, nerds because it is so unprecedented. And so what they've done is pass this piece of legislation that actually is much more extraordinary in what it represents in this parliament taking over the time than in actually what it contains. Okay. So what it says is that... Today, there will need to be a vote on the government's plan for an extension, which, of course, they'd already published last week, possibly because of pressure, knowing that this legislation was happening. But it's a vote on the government's already proposal to to extend Article 50. And actually, some of the things that happened in the passage of this bill actually remove some of the influence that Parliament already had in having a say on what happens on the outcome of this European Council and any extension. So... The bill itself and the contents of it actually isn't really Parliament taking over any more control and actually it's giving more power to the executive in some of the amendments. But But in what it represents exactly is really significant and could have big consequences both in the kind of the short and medium term to do with Brexit and possibly in the longer term if we start to have more very small majority parliaments minority governments it was a really significant okay. act okay well let's just restrict ourselves just to for sort of follow-up question if i may you said that it, you know it, it might have an impact over you know in the in the near term on how brexit t- i mean what what impact might that be in in the over the length of the extension so or? in the immediate exactly parliament will this afternoon get a vote on the prime minister's proposal for the extension so mm. this 30th of june date yeah. that we wrote to the eu about uh, at the end of last week and so mps will get to vote on that it will be amendable they can say actually no we want it to be much longer or much shorter or we want these conditions attached but that is just for the government's opening asked to the eu if the eu says something totally different and they decide the extension length which they did last time they you know they were the the ones driving the outcome Parliament doesn't get another say on that. Okay. They just need to accept what comes okay. down from okay. the European Council. Okay. Okay. Great. That all sounds pretty clear. Um, Catherine, let's um, stay in, in the UK for the moment, if we can, and just um, 
interested in your view on the, the sort of the background to these cross-party talks that, as I said, don't really seem to be going in anywhere at the moment. Labour's complaining that the government isn't budging on its red lines, particularly on a customs union. I mean, what, what do you think are the main obstacles to an agreement between Labour and the Conservatives on a, a potential Brexit outcome? Is there any scope for a fudge that, that might work for our, both of them, do you think? I think the first point to note is that the talks are about the future. They're not about the withdrawal agreement. And just to be clear, um, because so much um, uh, jargon here, the withdrawal agreement, that's the Article 50 agreement, that's Theresa May's deal. And that's really wrapping up things about the past. And uh, meaningful votes were on both the withdrawal agreement and the accompanying political declaration. The withdrawal agreement is legally binding, the political declaration as the name would indicate is not and the political declaration looks to the future and the talks with Labour are essentially over what sort of future relationship we might have, be it the customs union or the single market or something else entirely. Now Labour's position is broadly they want both a mixture of the customs union and the single market but no free movement of persons which is essentially Labour and the Conservatives' red lines. But, of course, it's unacceptable to the EU because the EU sees sees the single market as a package and so we can't pick off um, free movement of persons. So the real concern on Labour's side is that the government isn't budging over its red lines. Well, that's not quite true because the very fact they are talking about some sort of customs union, which in the past Theresa May had ruled out. But the real problem is if they agree to, for example, a customs union, how do you actually cement that into law and make it what's known as Boris proof? Right. Okay. And and by that I mean what the real concern is for Labour, and it must be said also the EU, is that even if there is an agreement that the UK will ask to stay in the customs union, it only needs a general election and a new prime minister who gets in with a, a much more significant majority than Theresa May has got at the moment, who says, well, actually, that's what the last government wanted. Our manifesto is not to be in the customs union, and therefore we're going to overturn that decision. So the real talks are about how to try and concretise any decision. And the favourite approach is to put it in some act of parliament, notably the WAB. And the WAB is yet another terrible acronym, but it stands for the Withdrawal and Implementation Bill, And that's a bill which will give legal effect to the divorce agreement. But the thing is, we don't have super constitutional statutes in the UK. All statutes are broadly equal. And that means that uh, one parliament can't bind its successors. That's a classic um, definition of parliamentary sovereignty, which is, of course, what people voted for when they voted to take back control. So even if it was put into an Act of Parliament, that Act of Parliament can be reversed by a later government. So the only way you could really give it some sort of legal effect, is, uh, which is sort of Boris proof, is to put it in the text of the withdrawal agreement. But then you run into another legal problem, which is that the withdrawal agreement is being adopted under Article 50, and Article 50 is broadly about sorting out the past and not about the future. So there's an argument that the EU might not have powers to have some sort of codicil to the withdrawal agreement. 
Lord. Well, uh, yeah, it's getting extremely complex, isn't it? Um, um, that's that's the law for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it keeps uh, us in business. Exactly. <laughs> um, Jennifer, how t- how did the notion of this sort of shock horror idea that British politicians from opposing parties might actually sit down and talk to each other? How did that go down in Brussels? You know, in in the first place. I mean, presumably, the I mean, obviously, I guess the EU twenty seven would have preferred this to happen a couple of years ago before Article fifty was even triggered. Um, but is there sort of serious hope in Brussels that, despite the kind of problems that Catherine's just talked about, you know, the, uh, the cross party talks might yield a way forward? Well, I think there are some EU officials who almost their, their catchphrase is that they're always hopeful, they're always optimistic about finding a way through the Brexit maze. But on the other hand, I, I do think in reality there's a lot of scepticism about these cross-party talks, at least scepticism that it will yield a result in time for the summit on Wednesday. And um, and, the, and you know, the, um, the EU know very well the, the characters and the personalities of, of British parliamentary politics and that's why I think they're they're skeptical that suddenly Labour and, and the Conservatives can find an agreement within the next few hours which has been so elusive over the last two and a half years and it's and of course it is very late in the day and and they would really have liked to have seen the UK speaking with one voice much much sooner not necessarily because I think there's any view on on which direction the UK should go in on the future relationship but just because there's been this consistent exasperation that the UK doesn't have a position and that's why we've heard time and time again will tell us what you really want and I think what is a concern for the EU at the summit um, is if Theresa May turns up without as they would see it a plan or at least a plan that in the EU's eyes would be pie in the sky because she does the prime minister does have a habit of coming to these summits and uh, giving promises that she can get her her agreement through parliament for example and then being unable to provide the details of how that's going to happen um, of not having a plan b and I think if if she comes to the summit on Wednesday with similar kind of vague assurances that she can get a deal with Labour ahead of the 30th of June. I think that's really not going to wash. And I think that is going to, to lead EU leaders to be to be looking for um, a much longer extension. Right. Yes, that's yeah, indeed. Um, just very briefly, Jennifer, there's one one little point that came up yesterday. I mean, there's a lot of Brexiters, aren't there, who continue to argue that no deal would be fine because Britain could just trade with the EU on WTO terms and then negotiate a you know, perfect satisfaction satisfactory trade deal. But Michel Barnier, the, the, the chief, EU's chief negotiator, it seemed to me sort of almost went out of his way yesterday to kind of knock that on the head, didn't he? And he said that, uh, you know, under a no deal, uh, the EU wouldn't even consider talking trade unless the three main issues covered by the withdrawal agreement were, were addressed first. I mean, is that a sign of Brussels beginning to seriously run out of patience uh, with what, all that's going on in Westminster? Well, I think probably people ran out of patience a, a long time ago, and um, it's certainly there. It's, there's a very deep exasperation with with British politics. But I, I think you're you're absolutely right. It is very interesting that that Michel Barnier has said this so explicitly. I think it's been implicit in EU policy for a long time. But interesting now that he's making this really explicit that all basically all roads for the, for a future deal with the EU go through the withdrawal agreement, and, and there really is no alternative as far as the the EU is concerned. So obviously trying to, to ramp up the pressure, perhaps in, in the hope that that agreement could finally be, be pieced together in, in the next few weeks. OK, right. Talking of piecing agreements together, Joe, that cabinet lock-in last week, um, it, it took seven hours, didn't it? I mean, what, now what does that tell us about the solution 
such as it is that emerged from that meeting how i mean how divided are the cabinet how difficult is that going to make things for theresa may in the days and weeks ahead so there's one uh, quote that i remember from the papers which i think came from an anonymous cabinet minister that said there are no good options left which <laughs> i think might be a bit of an understatement so the context of this right was that the government had thrown the kitchen sink at the DUP the week before to try and win them over ahead of that vote on the 29th of March. They had managed to whittle the ERG down. They'd got Jacob Rees-Mogg on board with the deal and they were left with um, a kind of, uh, I think it was just over a dozen... Sort of rump s- ERG. Yeah, I think I think it's self-titled name with the Spartans. <laughs> yes. Uh, self-titled, stressed. Um, and then the Prime Minister had also already offered to leave if they'd got this through and offered her kind of resignation as a way to... So they had thrown everything they had at the vote the kind of previous week. And this then was a cabinet that had to say, well, what next? Where do we go now? And I think the reports, which, you know, you can never fully trust leaks, but they seem to be very rapid and relatively reliable at the moment uh, from the cabinet, is that they spent a long time talking about an election which is obviously the usual kind of safety valve in the British constitution of these sorts of issues. If you can't get anything through Parliament, if Parliament is at stalemate, you call an election. They decided, I don't think that that was a very sensible position based on probably some internal polling perhaps they were shown Mm -hmm. or maybe not yet. And they kind of settled on, look, the only thing we can do is try and reach out to Labour and then also offer to hold our own indicative votes process, Mm. this process of testing Mm. options on Parliament. Mm. But in doing so, they managed to infuriate a lot of members of the backbenches who say that you're giving credibility to Jeremy Corbyn. And also, I think Labour were quite cautious of, you know, are we being set up for a trap? So I think the outcome of this became, was more about exhausting all other options than it was about having a a cunning plan that would would deliver the the government's Brexit in time for the end of this week. Okay, Catherine, Theresa May is heading back to Brussels asking for an extension um, to a date, namely June the 30th, that the, that the EU27 have already turned down. What on earth do you think makes her think that they'll react differently this time? I mean, why come back a second time with essentially the same demand? Well, for the simple reason that um, the European Parliament elections will generate uh, new MEPs, members of the European Parliament, and they start sitting at the start of July. And so the reason why she's come back with the 30th of June is for practical reasons, that it means that we will not need to have European Parliament elections and we will be out before the new Parliament sits but also for internal party reasons, which are simply that she doesn't want to be in the position of asking for a longer extension, which most sensible people actually think we probably need because um, we're so far away from trying to get the withdrawal agreement through and also start thinking about what the future might hold. And while the future is the future, the big problem with separating off the withdrawal agreement from the political declaration, which is what she did in the last vote, was it really did mean that the DUP and Labour were voting on a blind Brexit. 
And so she does need time, but she doesn't want to be in a position for asking for that um, much longer period. So she's asked for the 30th, which the EU won't accept, because what they're worried about is that we get to the 28th, 29th of June, and we're looking over the edge of a cliff again, as we are this week. And so she says, actually, I want some more time in, in June to take us to, say, September or December, and we won't have had the European Parliament elections. And they're very worried about that. The participation by the UK in the European Parliament elections is essentially the EU's red lines. Now, there have been arguments that actually we could be more creative and not participate in the elections and use existing MEPs, but this has been totally ruled out by the EU. We've got to participate in those elections. And interestingly, yesterday, the order triggering um, those parliament elections was published. Um, there's a wonderful legal point that the key act of parliament um, was due to be turned off by the EU Withdrawal Act of last year, but those provisions haven't come into force yet. And so actually... Um, we're relying on provisions which were meant to have been turned off in order to get ready for having European Parliament elections. What a nice detail. Um, Jennifer, I mean, Catherine alluded to it, but how how has the reappearance of that June the 30th deadline gone down in, in Brussels? I mean, you know, the, the, obviously the emergency summit is tomorrow and the EU27 said at the last one that May had to come back with a credible plan. Does, I'm, well, I'm talking to Labour and it might get somewhere honest, count as a plan? Well, I, I think the, the thing to say is that the EU have responded to this June the 30th deadline more in weariness than anger, that there's a sense of, you know, here we, here we go again with another plan we've already ruled out, albeit diplomats do see that at least now the, the Prime Minister is not ruling out taking part in those elections. In fact, she's saying she would prepare to do them. She just doesn't, she just hopes that the UK won't have to take part and the preparations won't be needed there, there is a sense of um, Groundhog Day about going down this this route again, and I think it's it's not taken at all seriously for all the reasons um, Catherine has said that the EU doesn't want to be reconvening every few months, every few weeks to have yet another Brexit crisis summit on the eve of the of the cliff edge. That's mixing all the metaphors <laughs> there. So, um, so I mean. The, I'm talking to Labour and it and it might get somewhere. Is that a plan? Well, well, it's not really. And, and the EU has said many times from many different actors that they want a credible plan. However, I think that there's a sense of sort of public relations in, in that statement. And of course, the EU does really want a credible plan. But I think when it came down to it, they would sooner have a, a rather poor excuse or a rather weak plan by then avoiding no, plan no deal all. Brexit mm. rather than um, insist on, on that point. So I think when it when it really comes down to it, I think they would um, they would extend for a long time with a rather sort of weak, vague plan from the UK. But I don't. I think what's not on offer would be a um, a, a weak plan and a, and a limited extension to the 30th of June, because I think everyone then sees the risk of then you have a crash out Brexit because the UK would not have taken part in in the European elections. So we'll, we'll really have to see at the summit exactly on you know what they decide is a credible plan. But I think it's it's possibly it's less demanding than what the public message is. Could I just add yes, one, one other point about the um, European Parliament elections? It's all very well, Theresa May, saying we're preparing for it, but um, I hope we don't have to hold them. The thing is that um, we've got over 70 seats in the European Parliament, and a number of those are due to be reallocated to other member states. And the reason why the 12th of April deadline appeared 
as if by magic out of the blue was because this was considered the date by which the other EU27, particularly those countries that were inheriting some of the UK seats, needed to know how many seats they were actually, actually voting on. Mm. In any, yes. And so it's all very well to say, well, we'll make up our minds, you know, a bit nearer the end of May about whether we're participating. That's not good enough because the other member states need to know how many seats they've, they've got. actually got. Yeah. Very good point. Um, Joe. before we sort of move over to the EU response and the, the, the actual length of the the extension that Theresa May is likely to get um, isn't the problem basically for, for, for the Prime Minister that essentially whatever plan she's able to present to the EU it's likely to alienate a large number of people in her own party isn't it? I mean I mean can the Conservative Party survive this process really yeah so this is the, the question is have we reached kind of one in one out on her deal and for everything that she shifts to try and win votes from Labour, she'll end up losing votes on her side. And if you looked at the kind of the way the voting happened on the indicative votes in Parliament around the series of options, what you saw is essentially the rump of the Conservative Party said no to everything um, that was in this kind of form of softer Brexit Mm. that actually got the support from Labour, the SNP uh, and the opposition parties. And so if the Prime Minister was to suddenly say, OK, we'll give you commitment for a customs union that might win over a large number of opposition MPs but it could just the bottom could fall out of her support that she's won over from the Conservatives so there's this really interesting question of whether is there any way you can move on the political declaration and it's why it was crafted in the way it has been crafted leaving open these broad spectrum of options and mentioning a customs union in one place mm. but also technical kind fixes for the border catch-all effect yeah. exactly to try and um as much not offend people and lose votes as trying to as trying to win them. And on the question of whether the Conservative, Conservative Party can last this, I mean, I'm no expert on this, but when you speak to some of the Conservative MPs, some quite senior MPs who've been in the party for a long time, they basically say the party is already split. I mean, there's already a party within a party. They talk about the ERG having its own whipping operation. It issues its own press releases they meet and come up with their own lines to take in a way that you would expect from a political party so whether they can continue to sit under the umbrella of the conservative party i think a lot of those questions will depend on what happens with any conservative party leadership contest as and when that comes Mm. Mm. Okay, Catherine, isn't the same true of Labour though? I mean, you know, there are sort of massive tensions in the opposition too, aren't there? And I mean, very good reasons why Labour's been so ambiguous on Brexit for so long. And and you know, the party just doesn't see much of an electoral advantage in 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 kind of reaching an agreement with the government at all. I'm just interested in your in your view as to the, the sort of the extent to which one of the main problems with Brexit, the way that Brexit's played out um, over the last couple of years, how, how, how much it's, it's been a problem that, it, it's, you know, we, the, the British political system essentially has turned it into a, you know, a, a party political football rather than a, a potential national crisis, really. I, I largely agree with that. I, I think um, Theresa made made a really quite strategic error very early on in her premiership, and that is that she didn't uh, engage with the other side at all. Now, of course, we know that 
British politics is largely binary. But if she'd been clever, she would have come up with some notion of a government of all the talents or perhaps those negotiating Brexit would be a mixture of talents from across the political divide, which would, of course, have bound them in to any withdrawal agreement, which was always going to be difficult to get through Parliament. But it would have been much easier if she could have said to Jeremy Corbyn and uh, the Lib Dems and, and the SNP, well, look, you were party to this agreement. You know, you've got to back it. You've got to put the mon- your money where your mouth is. Dip their hands in the blood. Th- that's right. And so, <laughs> if, if if she'd if she'd and if she'd reached out at the beginning, a it might have led to a smoother process. I can't. I wouldn't be um, problem free by any means because, of course, the issues that are being raised are absolutely fundamental. But it would have brought in and bound in um, the other groups. There was a, an interesting. Um interview I think with uh, former number 10 director of strategy who was involved in these early days and said that there were these conversations you know do we need to reach out and the view from the conservative party was that Brexit was going to be this huge opportunity and they didn't want to share the spoils with the other parties they wanted to completely own all of the positivity about it which uh, yeah given like what could happened have been since an error, slightly yeah. ironic but then you're, you're also your point Catherine I mean after the election was another point where surely these questions should have been asked mm. uh, you've had your yeah, once you've working lost your majority, majority yes. disappear and then to still not use that as a point to, to kind of to change approach is another I think big issue if you look back on how the last few months so is that a failure of uh, i mean ultimately a failure of political leadership on the part of theresa may for you catherine well, I'm, I'm afraid I think I think that's absolutely right. I think there's also um, there was a failure really to understand the fundamental issues at stake. Chris Wilkins said at the weekend that um, in the early drafts of the Lancaster House speech, um, there were some words in there about the fact that there would need to be trade offs. But all of that was taken out because Brexit was only going to be presented as an opportunity. And this is a real problem because people did believe that Brexit it was going to be opportunities and land of milk and honey and the government totally failed to explain that nothing is straightforward in this life and we can't have our cake and eat it and the language of Brexit means Brexit really disguised a lot of the complex problems underneath. Hmm. Fascinating. Okay, um, all right, well, let's start looking forward a bit um, rather than back. Jennifer, can you just talk us through the EU's positions and the debate going on, I guess, within the EU 27 as we head into this kind of crunch summit? How how many times have we said crunch summit? uh, Donald Tusk, the the European Council president's recommending a flex tension. Angela Merkel's promising to do everything in her power to prevent a no deal. Emmanuel Macron in France is demanding a a credible plan with with clear parliamentary backing as the precondition for any kind of extension at all. I mean, the, the EU isn't speaking with one voice here, is it? Well, there there are clearly differences among different EU member states. But for me, these differences are not the really visceral arguments that you get over other issues such as Eurozone or migration. It's, It's a bit more like a puzzle that... EU leaders haven't quite decided how to solve and there are there are different opinions about how to go about about solving that puzzle but but it's not something that people are at each other's throats at in the way that you've seen on other issues so there are there are different sort of options on the table and you, you mentioned um Donald Tusk's flex tension idea this new bit of jargon that uh, everybody hates uh, which basically means you have a one year extension but it could be it could be ended by mutual agreement at uh at almost any time if the UK were to pass the withdrawal agreement and get that agreement on the on the political declaration that we were talking about earlier. 
and then as you as you alluded to we have on the one hand um germany tends to be the sort of leader of the cautious camp they don't want to push the uk out of the door they really sort of see the historic sort of weight of of, of brexit weighing on their shoulders and and then on the other hand you have um emmanuel macron the leader of the the impatient camp and and he's been coming out with the toughest rhetoric although i think there are there are good reasons for thinking that actually he's not going to to veto uh, an extension and we, we've we had seen discussion in the in the last few days about whether this is his his de Gaulle, his de Gaulle moment, moment whether yeah. he goes against the rest of the eu and um and takes a just as de Gaulle vetoed the uk's entry he, he vetoes the uk's um and Brexit extension, but I think that the, the the EU of 27 is very different from the old European Community of six, and France would think very carefully about having economic chaos at French ports on the eve of the European elections, which are very important for for Macron. And then also um, there's the risk of polarizing the EU and of creating more division when the EU's been so careful about trying to preserve unity. So it's very hard to see at this stage any single member state, including a big powerful one like France, using its veto at this summit. So I think they will find some agreement on extension and possibly the the, the really sort of tricky discussion will be about the you know how to keep the UK in without without disrupting the EU. Uh, rather than the principle of extension itself. Yes, I mean, that's important, Catherine, isn't it? This idea that if a lengthy extension is offered and accepted, um, Britain is going to have to to agree to behave, basically, and and not disrupt proceedings in the EU. I I mean, I guess matters like deciding the long-term budget and and choosing the new commission and that kind of thing. Is that possible? I mean, there's been some talk about about the EU wanting sort of legally binding assurances from Britain that, you know, that it it would behave. uh, Are those possible? Could they exist? Well, actually, they already exist. Um, There is a provision in the treaty called on the duty of loyal cooperation, which means that member states must cooperate with the EU in the performance of its tasks. And so the UK is already saying, well, look, we're bound by that duty of loyal cooperation, and therefore you don't need anything else. Uh, The EU is mulling over a couple of possibilities. One, a further gentleman's agreement of some sort, which basically says that that the UK's got to behave or at least vote with the majority on these key decisions um, so they don't disrupt the um, performance of the EU's task. Remember, Jacob Rees-Mogg said very publicly on more than one occasion, we should be inside and disrupting the operation of the EU. But the other thing that's coming out at the moment is discussion about how actually do you enforce that obligation. And so it may be that one of the conditions of the flex extension, i.e. the extension period, is that um, it's flexible for the UK, that if we get the withdrawal agreement through, we can pull out before, say, the end of the year. But equally, if the UK is seen to be an obstructive member state, the EU can pull out of it as well. And I think that may be the way forward. It's a sort of a mutual... Mutual, mutual sort of self-destruct. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> OK. okay. Um, Joe, you know, I, one of the reasons, I guess, why, why, why Macron uh, um, would not veto is that it, it, it would throw Ireland under the bus, wouldn't it? I mean, do you think Britain's been surprised by the extent to which uh, the EU has support has, has, has really backed Ireland up in, in, in this? I think the issue of Ireland and the Irish border has sometimes quite depressingly surprised, seemed to have surprised the UK kind of time and 
time again, again throughout this repeatedly. process. Yeah. And actually, you know, one at, at the very early stages, I think some said this to me, that Ireland kind of had a choice of whether it tried to be the friendly UK voice inside the EU, helping the UK to get a good, sensible deal, knowing just how important that relationship between the UK and Ireland is to them, and do they become a kind of a bit of a cheerleader for them to try and navigate for something sensible, or do they throw their weight fully behind, you know, the EU27 solidarity um, all in it together. And they went for that latter option. And you'd imagine that they felt justified in that decision again, time and time again throughout this process. But the, the Irish question gets quite difficult for the EU now in the way that the UK has been turning itself in knots to try and come up with a version of the future relationship that doesn't mean a hard border on the mm-hmm. island of Ireland. But if there's a no deal... And in planning for a no deal, there are some really difficult questions for the EU and Ireland to come up with an answer to. Because everything that the EU does to minimise disruption in Ireland, to ensure that there's no hard border and there's no checks and it tries to protect the the North-South cooperation, that just feeds the fuel of the Brexiteers of saying, well, there was no need for his backstop in the first place because nothing's happened. But then... Do they start to say, well, OK, we're going to start to look at checks then between Ireland and France to ensure the integrity of the single yes, market and yeah, stick to that yeah, red line? Yeah. If so, are they just chucking Ireland under a bus? So all of these different trade-offs that they're going to have to make, they've managed to avoid making them very clearly so far. But you know, They that, might have to if there's a no deal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. one of the many reasons why, why the EU will, will try and avoid that, I imagine. I mean, Catherine, I mean, as things stand right now, though, unless... There is an extension. Britain leaves on Friday night. I mean, do it does you, at eleven o'clock. Yes, is that? I mean, how much of a? I mean, if you, I had to ask you to, to, to sort of, um, you know, give a percentage chance uh, to that eventuality, what would you, what, what would you put it at? Um, leaving without a deal on Friday night, I think the risks is a risks are now really rather low, which I think is a good thing because uh, no deal is very serious. But I don't rule out the possibility of a no-deal Brexit at some later point because, of course, all we're doing by asking for an extension is kicking the can down the road. Now, we might be kicking the can down the road till June or December or even next March, but it still doesn't resolve the fundamental issues and it might give a bit of breathing space. It also will give the MPs and the civil servants a chance to take some holiday. This is not actually a serious point because I think it's a real problem that people... Not to mention the journalists. Right? Oh, well, that, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's <laughs> indeed the academics, but that's by the by. But I think it's the fact is people are exhausted and it's a very bad moment to be taking you know, Critical really decisions, fundamental right? decisions affecting our mm. uh, society and economy when everyone is so exhausted. But it doesn't actually actually resolve the fundamental problems. And the more people look at the problems, um, the more intractable they become. Now, there are two possibilities that can happen in that extension period, assuming there is one. One is that uh, people have a rest, they come away, come back fresh and start thinking we need to have, be a bit more creative in our solutions. Or the opposite might happen and that um, each side becomes more entrenched in their position because the betrayal narrative, which the Brexiteers can really run with now, risks becoming ever more acute you'll see it if we have European Parliament elections and I suspect it will um, become the narrative into the party conference season in the autumn yeah 
Yes. Um, Jennifer, are we in for another all-nighter, do you think? I mean, what's your best guess with what they'll, with what they'll, the EU27 will come up with? Some people are suggesting, you know, basically, um, if, if the deal can be got through this week, then, you know, all well and good and out within a, a month or so. Otherwise, um, a very long extension. I agree with Catherine that it's it's very hard to to see a, a no deal at at this stage. I mean, there's always an element of unpredictability about EU leader summits because because you never really know what they will agree. And we saw last time that the leaders simply tore up what had been prepared for them by their by their diplomats and sherpas and came up with their own proposal on how to deal with the the British problem. So I, I think tomorrow, though, my best bet is that we will see um, a long extension, but also with with those promises from the UK on sincere cooperation, also known as the, the Jacob Rees-Mogg clause. So I think, yes, that, that does co- cause concern among some in the EU. But there's also a feeling, actually, this is a problem that can be handled, i.e. that it, it's they don't see this as a deal breaker that the EU could the, rather that the UK could be so disruptive that it would be a, a, a real problem. There are some people who point out that on the, the, the allocation of the EU's big jobs, for example, later this year, the appointment of a new commission president and council president. In fact, there's no single country that has a veto over those jobs. And then when it comes to the, the seven-year budget, there's also a, a view that this can also be managed even with the UK as a member state until this time next year, that the, the, the EU27 can still work out their budget and then simply agree it, um, assuming that Brexit does happen at that after that extension date. So, so none of these issues are seen as deal breakers. So that's why I think we will, more, the most likely outcome is a long extension, but with a, with promises by the UK to, to be good and uh and, okay. Uh, be a, yes, and be able to, to behave. Not, to behave. Be, not so, be too difficult uh, during <laughs> exactly, its uh, exactly. time so, in the waiting room. Joe, I mean, so the EU could live with a long extension. Could um, could Britain live with a long extension? I mean, what are the domestic consequences of another year of this in Westminster? Well, I think the first question is what what happens immediately afterwards, and I think there is a chance that we will see potentially another meaningful vote, another vote on the deal. This week, it would be the, the, the Ollie Robbins in a hotel bar scenario. So Ollie Robbins, the UK's um, civil servant leading the negotiations, was overheard in a bar in Brussels saying it could come down to MPs being given the choice between this deal and a massive extension in the very final days. So we could be fully into that scenario. You don't think she's been planning for this, do you? Well, they've, they've tried this <laughs> scenario before. I think if... If the Prime Minister had been planning to go through all of the steps of the last few weeks, then um, I can't imagine it was a very fun, plan- fun planning exercise because I don't <laughs> think it's been a very fun few weeks for her. But I think there would there could be one last roll of the dice to say, look, this is now a choice between this deal and leaving before possibly European Parliament elections or you're talking much, much longer. So we could still see that. If we do enter the, the long extension, I think there are two two questions. One in terms of what it means for the process. So what are we actually going to be doing with this time? Because the EU have been very clear, right, that the withdrawal agreement, which contains the backstop, is not going to be reopened, even in a long extension. So what are we going to do with this extra few months, continue the kind of essay crisis in the UK of what we want? Or will there be efforts with the EU to negotiate a more detailed political declaration that gets rid of this blind Brexit accusation and there's a bit more meat on the bones on the non-binding political declaration? 
So then the next big question of a long extension is what does it mean for the personalities at the top and the politics? And Theresa May has already said that she would go if they get her deal through. Um, If they then don't get her deal through and even possibly reject it for another time, is her position sustainable if there is a year or nine months now added on to the Brexit timeline and will then back Conservative backbenchers, the cabinet move to say, look, okay, time's up, time for someone else to try this next phase. And then we're into leadership election, all sorts of different moving bits. So it could kind of pause the formal process with the EU but throw domestic politics right up in the air. Can I throw one other spanner in the works? With great pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) um, There might be another reason for an all-nighter and that is that we might need to revoke Article 50. Ah. Um, For the simple reason that if the EU does not give us an extension and given that we know that there is a large majority in Parliament for a no-deal Brexit, the only thing that would be left for us to do is to revoke Article 50 that's the only thing we can do unilaterally and that would require an act of parliament and so preparations already been made for MPs to stay up all night on Thursday night to try to get that legislation through. Wow what a prospect. Okay well we're pretty much out of time um, I just want to do a very quick tour of the table as they say um, next Brexit means podcast will be in a month's time um, just about a, 10 days or so before the European elections. Um, where do you think we'll be by then? Joe? let's start with you. I think it's always a safe bet in the Brexit process to say we'll be no closer to knowing what's going to happen at the end. That has been true almost consistently for two and a half years. So that'll be my overall. I think it's um, it's quite likely we'll, we will be in an extension, not still clear exactly when that might end. OK, Jennifer. I think we could be in the middle of the most interesting European election campaign that we've ever had in the <laughs> in the UK. Uh, we've Brexit very much being the subject that we're talking about morning, noon, and night. But I mean, this could be a big political problem for Theresa May, who's spending uh, her time at the moment telling us how she doesn't want to have these European elections, and then the, the closer we get to them, assuming this extension is, is granted, that's something that doesn't look very much like Brexit, and. Um, and I think we'll only sort of add to the sense of uh, turmoil in, in politics. OK. And Catherine? I agree with that. I think um, there's a reasonable chance now we can have European Parliament elections. I think the public has been extraordinarily energised by all of this. I think you'll see some all, all sorts of interesting people standing. That's very true. Candidates. I mean, there's a real pro-European movement in the UK now for the first time in, in probably ever. <laughs> so I think you might find extremes. I mean, we know that um, Nigel Farage's party... Um, may well be able to garner a huge number of votes and get um, a lot of candidates. Remember, the um, voting system's different. And likewise, on the other end as well. So, And particularly, I've heard a quite surprising number of people saying, well, actually, I fancy giving it a go as a candidate to be an MEP for the next nine months. So it may be that it will be the most interesting European Parliament elections. Excellent. OK, well, that's something to look forward to, at least. Uh, that really is it, uh, I'm afraid, for this time. My thanks to Catherine, to Jennifer and to Joe, as ever. Um, we'll be back with a fresh dose of Brexit bedlam, as I said, in mid-May. Uh, we might even by then, who knows, have a little bit of certainty. Please do subscribe, a review on all your favourite podcatchers and join the discussion on Twitter. You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, it's brexitpodcast at theguardian.com. That's all one word, brexitpodcast at theguardian.com. Till next time then, I'm John Henley. The producer was Simon Barnard. This was Brexit Means and thank you for listening. 
For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.